As we continue to worship together this morning, uh, we come now to listen to God speak through His Word uh, from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Um, if you could turn there with me, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. It's also found in your pew Bible, if you're using that Bible, on page 976. Ephesians 2. Verse 1, this is God's holy and inerrant word. And you were dead in the trespasses, in your in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them." This is God's Word. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. I think the kids can, the, the children can be dismissed too at this time. I was told you are going to do that anyway if you were going to, um, if you have little ones there dismissed. I was listening to a sermon last week and, and heard y'all didn't have this, and um, I know that y'all are excited about having it again. It is an incredible honor and privilege uh, to, to be with you this morning and to be back in Memphis to do RUF and, and very excited about being, being back um, and bringing you God's Word this morning. But let's pray um, as we, as we, before we jump in, into this. Let's pray together. Father, what a friend we do have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. Father, we come to your word, we need to believe that. Help us to believe that. Help us to believe that you really are a friend, that you really do care for us. Father, we pray that your word, this means of grace, would encourage us, would bind our hearts. Father, we, we would be encouraged by the person of Jesus. You love us, that you care for us. In the midst of our struggle, in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our shame, you really do care for us. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for your word. Father, may your word convince us of who you are this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. We're going to be, so Ephesians 2 was already read. Um, This fly is like, I'm going to try to go Mr. Miyagi on this fly. Um, But uh, for all the Karate Kid fans out there, one of, uh, one of my RTS professors um, in seminary, Simon, Dr. Simon Kissemacher, 
uh, was asked by some of his students, what was the, what's the hardest passage of Scripture that you ever uh, had to ever preach on? Um, and he thought about it for a second, and he said this. He said, gentlemen, the, the hardest passage of Scripture that I ever had to preach on was John 3.16. And, and the students began to kind of chatter and, and, and talk amongst themselves, and you know, they were all in agreement, like, this is not a hard passage of Scripture. Like, this is, this is the verse that you, 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 you see all the time, like, during football games, and, um, and, and you, you see it, you know, posted on places. It's, it's, it's the all-star passage. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But then he silenced the room uh, when, when he, he said this. He said, gentlemen, the difficulty of that passage is, is that I could never figure out why in the world, uh, or I can never figure out a reason for God to love the world. And this morning, we're going to try to look in and dig into this text a little bit um, and answer that question. Why, why, would, why would God love the world? Why would he show his love to sinners? Why indeed would he love you? Why in the world would he love me? That's the question this morning, not that does God love the world, but why does he love us? Why does, he, why does God love sinners like you and me? Um, and we need to remember, like, this is like a letter to Christians. Uh, this, is, he, he, the, this gospel came to this great city, uh, and people were converted, uh, and it affected the whole economy of the city. Paul is writing to these people, these Christians, uh, yet he is still recounting the gospel to them. And, and if you think, you know, I get the privilege of kind of just kind of jumping in. You know, the, the guest speaker gets to pick his passage. You know, I'm, I'm going off. I, I told Nathan, I'm going off star passage on this one. Um, and and I, get, I, get that, I get that privilege. But I don't, my fear is, even when I'm driving here this morning, that, that you would just check out because you've heard this. Um, Paul says you, that, that you... You never move past the gospel. You never move past it. Um, and, and he says, if you need the, basically, you need the gospel more today than you, than you ever did before. And this passage is this great declaration of the gospel. And Paul begins by painting this great this, this picture of, of our condition first. Um, and, and I was even thinking this morning, like, ah, like, I don't know what's in me like that, 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 man, I just want to get through my first point. But we're going to talk about our condition um, apart from Christ. And he paints this picture of our condition, and Paul wants, wants you to know what you've been saved from so that you can appreciate and wallow in what you've been saved to. So I have three points this morning. We're going to look at first who we are, basically the bad news, um, and then secondly, what does God do about it? And then, the, uh, why does God do all of this? Why does he do all this? So let's start with this first point. Who we are by nature must be the starting point. The gospel starts by saying that you and I are more wicked and manipulative than we ever dared believed. In fact, we are so bad that we need to live in denial just to get through the day. But as the gospel begins to work in your life, the reality of the gospel, the reality of what Jesus has done for you begins to work in your life, it will set you free to own up to your own sin. 
Look at how Paul understands our depravity and our brokenness. He considers it vital for the Christian um, in Ephesus to continue to reflect upon this. Paul doesn't say, I've been there, done that, let's move on. Paul starts by reflecting upon who we are apart from Christ. He says a couple of things. He says first, verses 1 and 2, from the get-go, that we're spiritually dead and separated from God. Why? Because of our guilt. Paul doesn't say that we are basically good people uh, that need a helping hand. He says we're dead. And this deadness is real, but spiritual. We're not in danger of death. We're not half dead. Paul says we are actually dead because of our sin. John Piper says that we're in, we're in the morgue, not in the doghouse. In a doghouse, you can whimper. You can say sorry. You can throw yourselves on God's mercy. Some of us as fathers know where you know this. This place as husbands, we're in the doghouse. And we whimper and we say sorry and we throw ourselves on mercy. But what, what can you do in a morgue? Nothing. This is the human condition. We're, we're, we're completely dead in our sins. And apart from, from Christ, people have no relationship with God. And we, and we don't... And, we, and I drank coffee that I told Nathan, if I drink coffee, I'm going to get fired up. I'm just going to start like stumbling over my... Going faster than my lips can move. Um, we don't do anyone a favor. Because we don't do anyone a favor by downplaying the reality of who and where we were. And our problem is not just guilty feelings but real objective guilt before a holy God. It gets worse. Paul says that humanity is not only dead, but also enslaved by our sinful nature. The point is this, that we, are all, we always want to do what we, we always do what we want to do. And those of us who are apart from Christ, they desire only to please themselves and follow the desires and the thoughts of their sinful nature. So Paul teaches that we're dead and we're powerless to change because we're enslaved and we don't even want to change. But things get even worse than that, he says. Verse 4, we're objects of wrath. Whoever first posed the idea that that the God of the Old Testament um, is a God of wrath and the God of the New Testament is this God of love couldn't really have read the Bible. The New Testament clearly teaches that those apart from Christ are under God's wrath. They don't even deserve a chance to hear the gospel. They don't, all, the only thing they deserve is death and hell. And they deserve it to be poured out on them right here, right now. But remember, this is what Paul is saying is true of, of you and I. This is our nature. We can't separate ourselves from the sentence. God doesn't have to offer salvation to a single person or single soul to be fair towards them. The gospel is about mercy. It's not about, it's not about getting what we deserve. Thank goodness. Do you believe that? Do you believe that this morning? Do you, do, you, do you really believe you have no claim on God's mercy? That he owes you absolutely nothing. A, a few years ago, um, a woman in, a, in, a, in the church I was at gave me this sobering article from foxnews.com, and the article was entitled, Hundreds of Indian Girls Named Unwanted Chose New Names. So more than 200 Indian girls 
whose name was given to them that literally meant unwanted um, in Hindi were able to choose new names for themselves. So in October of uh, October 2011, um, a central Indian district held this renaming ceremony um, in hopes of giving these girls a fresh new start in life and a new identity. You see, this article explained that that many Indians favored sons over daughters. Um, there was an enormous expense of marrying off a girl. Some of you know that. <laughs> and, uh, and, and families often would go into great debt in, in, in arranging these marriages and paying these elaborate dowry, dowries off. A boy, on the other hand, which I have three, uh, three boys, and I'm thankful for this very reason, they're a little bit cheaper. Um, <laughs> You know, and it, one day the boys will bring home this, this bride and this dowry alongside them as well. And so the result of baby girls are, are aborted. Um, and if they live, they're neglected. Um, and they're left on their own. And literally they're given the name unwanted. Just for being who they are. Can you imagine being so unwanted that your father or your grandfather would give you the name unwanted. Just being an object of wrath simply because of who you are. Apart from Christ, our condition is spiritually dead, separate from God, separated from God, enslaved to our sinful natures. We're objects of wrath. We are unwanted because of our sin. So I'm looking forward to this second point. So, so what does God do about it? What does he do about it? While God would be completely just and righteous in destroying us, the good news of the gospel is he doesn't do those, he doesn't do that to those that he has mercy upon. Jack Miller, a pastor in Philadelphia, uh, used to say, uh, cheer up, cheer up, you're worse than you think you are. But God's grace is greater than you could ever imagine. Look at verse 4. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ Jesus, even when we were dead. The two greatest words in the Bible, if I could pick two, are probably but God. They are exceptionally great when you recognize that God did not have to do anything. He never had to intervene. He could have left us in our natural state. He could have left us dead. He could have left us enslaved. He could have left us condemned. He could have left us unwanted. But God. One of the best sermons you could ever listen to um, was, was, uh, it's hard to listen to because it's like an old Welsh preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's dead now. Um, preached on these two words. Just these two words, but God. And he said this, these two words, but God, in and of themselves, in a sense, contain the whole gospel. But God tells us what God has done and how he has intervened um, in what, what otherwise would have been a helpless situation. The gospel is that we deserve death, but we don't get it. But grace changes, grace and forgiveness changes everything, doesn't it? 
The gospel is God to the rescue, verse 5. He made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace grace you've been saved. Paul's definition of grace is not God helping the sick. It is God making dead people alive. There's, abs- there's, nowhere, ab- there's nowhere in the Bible um, that, 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 there, that this idea of that salvation is this 50-50 uh, kind of arrangement where you do your part and God does his part. Salvation is that we are made alive by God and we are passive in that process. Your faith did not make you alive. It is the first evidence that you have been brought from death to life. But as great as that is, there's even more. Verse 7 and 8 tells us he doesn't just bring us back to the starting block. He doesn't just bring you back to start over. He makes you, I love this, he makes you a trophy of his grace. He makes you a trophy of his grace. Um, I, my, my three, I have three sons. And they're kind of into like displaying their athletic awesomeness like on a shelf, you know. Um, and most of their trophies were just given to them because, you know, we're in that day of age, everybody gets a trophy. But, they're, but, they're, but they, they, they display their, their trophies. And about a couple of years ago, um, we went home. I went to my mother's house, I call it home, and, um, and I pulled out an old trunk and, and opened up, and it was filled with, with, tro- with my trophies, my childhood trophies. I mean, it was filled to the rim, let me just tell you. Um, just with, with, just filled with trophies. Just trophies among trophies. I don't need that. Um, I'm going to need that in a minute because, uh, but I'll, I'll I'll get that a little bit. Um, but it was filled with trophies, and, and my son Henry would would he would just he, he's my middle son, and he just was so proud of those trophies. And he took those trophies and he put some of them on his on his shelf to display like like oh this is my dad's accomplishments and. Uh, he was so proud of those things. And, and I get this picture when I think about we're made trophies of his grace. The Heavenly Father, um, the Heavenly Father lavished s- such a love upon his people that, that, that they would marvel for eternity, for all eternity, over the incredible kindness and the love of God. And it will take all eternity to fathom that love. His love for us. And those who are saved will never plumb the depths of that love. It would be like dropping a rock in a hole and listening and never hear it splash. It's that deep. His love is that deep for you. Because of His great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. So what? Why why does He do all this? Why does He do all this for us? From this text, we learn three things. I I think I'm going to add a fourth thing. Uh, There are a lot of things we can learn. Here here are four things that we can learn from this text. Why does he do all this for us? First, God does it, verse 7, for his own glory. He does it for his own glory in order that in the coming ages he might show his incomparable riches of his grace expressed in in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. God wants to receive glory by demonstrating His mercy. It's God's, God, and God's selfish in wanting to be glorified. Well, the question is, is God selfish 
to be, to be wanting to be glorified? No. He's the only one that deserves it. He's the only one that deserves it. And we can't fully understand the glorious mercy of God. Paul calls it incomparable. His mercy is incomparable, but we get a glimpse of it in the gospel. His glory is that he can and he does condescend. He stoops um, and he shows mercy. I, I heard this great illustration from a local pastor, Jeffrey Lancaster, years ago. Um, he was telling this story uh, about how him, him and his children years ago were going to the, the Zurich Classic in New Orleans when he was a pastor there. And his kids were little. And he had one on his shoulders and he had two by the hands and they were late to see Phil Mickelson play. And, uh, and they finally arrived. The crowds were following Phil because he was like number two in the world. And he, they finally get to a place where they can see Phil teeing off from a hill. And they see him and he, and he hits the ball and he starts coming down the hill. Um, and there's a, there's a point in the middle, he's with his kids and he's sweating profusely. If you know Jeffrey, he's a sweater. Um, is, is this recorded? Uh, the, uh, and he's bigger than I am. But, if, uh, but he, he's got his kids down and, he, and at one point Jeffrey says, he, he, he's like, Phil just made eye contact with me. And he's coming, down, he's coming down the hill, and Phil is coming toward the crowd, and people are like, where is he going? And, and Jeffrey's like, I'm staying right here. And they make eye contact, and Phil comes walking, gets, takes the rope, and he gets underneath the rope, and he walks out into the crowd. And he's walking straight to Jeffrey and his kids. And Phil goes down to, his, to both of his kids, and he's like, thank you so much for coming to watch me play. And the crowd's going, ah, I mean, this thing is unbelievable. And that's a reason I'm a Phil, I'm a Phil fan. Because that. And he, so he pulls out a glove and he autographs the glove and he autographs balls and he gives it to the kids and he high fives them. It's just, just great. And that's, and that's the number two golfer in the world. He stoops down. Um, but the God who made everything, as even, even as, as Nathan said this morning, who measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, who marked off the heavens with the breadth of his hand, like that God um, shows his greatness. He shows his greatness and glory by being able to care for little ones. The glory is, his glory is, that he can, and he does stoop down, and he rescues. He shows his mercy. And God is jealous for his glory. He refuses it to share it with anyone. This leads me to another reason why he does it. He does it so that he can exclude all possibility of, of, of human boasting. Verses 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is, this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. God refuses to share his glory with another. And while we may think it was our choice, um, that, that we made a good choice, and, and, and this because we're a, we made this choice to be a Christian, um, and we may even quietly pat ourselves on the back thinking we made a good decision, the, but the Bible never gives us credit for our salvation. Our salvation is completely an act of God's grace. And a, fail, and a failure to even understand that simple point um, will, be de- will have a devastating effect on your Christian life. Your life will be marked with fear. 
Always wondering if, you're, if you were sincere when you asked Jesus into your heart. And you'll always be trying to impress God by your own efforts. Because you don't really understand what Christ did for you in His life and His death. Our salvation is completely an act of God's great grace. The third reason He does all this is because He wants you to do good works. Verse 10. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which He prepared in advance before us to do, for us to do. The Gospel is not just about delivering us from God's wrath and spiritual death. It is also God's... It's about His goal for you. His very goal for you. He made us His work of art to glorify Him in all we do. But we must keep verse 10 in its proper place. For a work to be good, it has to be done out of a proper motivation. And until we understand the gospel of free grace, we'll never have the right motives. Unless you understand that God has fully forgiven you and made you His child, you will always be trying to earn His love by your good deeds. God, didn't, God did not come to rescue us because of anything related to us. Um, it wasn't prompted by our merits. It wasn't prompted by your family. How many kids you have? Some of you have ten kids I met today. It's awesome. Um, it's not prompted by your family. Uh, it's not prompted by who you know. Um, it's entirely prompted by his own character. That's why we read about his love and his mercy and his grace and kindness in this passage. We are saved entirely because of, of the undeserved favor of God who, is, who has responded to us despite our desperate condition. You know, another point, just why he does all this struck me yesterday. Um, a fourth reason is because verse 4 says he is rich in his mercy. You know, I, I don't know. I, I need to hear this all the time. And you may be here you may be here this morning, but I just need to hear. John, just please tell me he is merciful. It's been a hard week. You know, do you, verse 4 tells us, like, he is merciful. He does all this because he is rich in mercy. It's who he is. It's his character. He has lots, tons of mercy. And it is God's great love that makes him so rich in mercy. One of my favorite, if I, if I could pick, if, if pastors are allowed to pick favorite passages of Scripture, I have one. Um, and uh, it would be Isaiah thirty forty eight. One of my favorite passages, some, a, a girl in my youth ministry um, painted me this picture with this verse on it, and I love it. It's a great reminder. Says Isaiah thirty forty eight says this. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. He waits to be gracious to you, and therefore He exalts Himself to show mercy to you. Isn't that good news? It's good news. He is rich in mercy, and He loves to show it. That sobering. Um, Fox News article of those unwanted Indian girls, folks intervened, um, and these girls chose new names for themselves. And in our case, 
In our case, it was the hound of heaven. You, you ever heard of the, the hound of heaven um, who entered into the picture. He entered into the picture and he brought us to himself and he stooped down and he, and he reached down and he gave you and I a new name. He gave you and I a new standing. He gave you and I an eternal inheritance. And He raised you up in His trophy case. He, ra- he made you a trophy of His grace. And seated in, with Christ, who was seated with Him. Man, we could preach, I could preach a whole other sermon on that. In other, in other words, one commentator says this, may this utterly unmerited love of God in Jesus Christ move and woo you. And we read, that, we read Romans. But God demonstrated His own love for, for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Love so amazing, love so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Let us pray together. Father, we do thank You for Your Word. It is good. It's a good reminder. It's a good reminder of of who we are, who we were, and who we are now. Father, we thank You for Christ Jesus. It's in His name we pray. Amen.